It was supposed to be the perfect night. The kids were at the mother-in-law's, wife had slid on some new lingerie, and all devices were shut off as we enjoyed a night of rekindled love. But my dream night quickly became a nightmare. I don't know where it came from, but it's getting closer. I was curled up in bed when I was first alerted to this intrusion of my home. It possessed such a strong odor that it could not sneak up on its victim, even if it had a desire to do so, but that just makes it more frightening. I know it's coming, and I'm still powerless against it. My wife had gone downstairs to grab us some water just prior to its arrival. I was paralyzed with fear at the thought of her alone in its presence, but just then, I could hear her screams from downstairs. Baby, just stay put. It's in the hallway. I can make it outside. I can get help. Just don't move. My mind was scrambling, and I began to sweat profusely as I gazed aimlessly beneath my bedroom door. As the seconds ticked by, it felt like an eternity. I began to see it reaching beneath the door crack, almost as if it was teasing me before the execution. As it slowly crept its way into my room, I began to fear my world grow smaller. I crawled further and further away from its advances until I pressed against the closet wall. I heard sirens and the unmistakable sounds of my wife shaking screams from the front lawn. I was beginning to lose consciousness from the smoke inhalation when I heard her speaking to someone. Ma'am, before I send my men in, is there anyone in the house? No, the kids were away, thank God. Just me at home tonight. My grandfather lived a quiet life after his wife passed away, choosing to spend his twilight years in solitude. He seemed to have no interest in being closer with his kids or even getting to know any of his grandchildren. He rarely attended any family gatherings. I only met him once during a wedding. Like me, he was quiet, a wallflower in an otherwise loud family. I wonder if that's why he sent me the letter. He wanted me to help get his affairs in order. As unexpected as the request was, I'll admit I was curious. I took a few days off work and made the drive up to the lake house, a lonely place at the end of a long dirt road. The yard was an overgrown mess. The home, surely once beautiful sight, was left in disrepair. As I approached the front door, I saw two worrying details. First, a note had been hammered into the door, and second, the door was ajar. The note was in my grandfather's writing. Don't be alarmed by what you find inside. There are two messes for you to clean up. The first is here, the entryway. The second is in the basement. The basement needs to be completely cleared out. The contents destroyed and the room cleaned. When it's done, the house and everything inside will belong to you. Driven again by curiosity, I pushed the door open. The large entryway was dark, but I could see the swinging feature amongst the shadows. I couldn't will myself to look up, so instead, I looked forward. I didn't know what kind of game my grandfather had been playing, but I knew I wanted it to end soon. I found the door to the basement, also left open, at the far end of the room. I turned my phone light on, and, more cautiously this time, walked down the stairs. The basement was small and notably well kept. On the wall to my right was a variety of tools hung from a wooden pegboard. To the left, power tools were neatly organized on a large table. On the far side of the room, hand and leg cuffs were chained to the wall. 
Above them, hanging from the ceiling, were hundreds of locks of human hair, loosely organized by color. Handfuls of it were stapled to the ceiling, and for the life of me, I couldn't tell how many people they came from. Disgusted, I made my way back up the stairs. I decided that I would call the police and show them what I found, and after that, I would want no part of my grandfather's game. Some other poor soul would have to clean up his mess. When I looked up at him on my way to the front door, I pointed my phone light up so I could get a closer look at the monster who brought me here. The man hanging from the ceiling wasn't my grandfather. The wildfires got really close that summer. The sky was a gray-orange mass of clouds, dusting everything beneath them with ash. We all stayed inside. It was too hard to breathe, too hard to see. The kids, of course, didn't let that stop them. My son, Roger, seemed more excited than ever to go out and explore. The wife didn't like it, so I told him to cover his mouth while outside and not to get lost in the mess. A mess, that's the way to describe it. Roger phrased it best when he got back one afternoon and said, Dad, it's like the end of the world out there. And for someone, it was. In that first week, a boy in town had gone missing, Alan Gibney. He was one of Sue Gibney's kids. A larger boy who made it a habit picking on girls at school. One of my daughters, Megan, was one of the girls he bullied. He liked to pull her hair. The boy's behavior aside, I felt bad for Sue. After that, my kids weren't allowed out. The fires got worse. Evacuation was less of a what if, more of a when. It never happened, of course, but it had us distracted. One afternoon, a few days before the sky began to clear up, Roger had a friend over. I usually let the boys keep to themselves, but I wanted to give them good news. The fire was dying down. Before I could push the door open, I heard something that stopped me in my tracks. It was the other boy, Max. He sounded upset. If your parents find out, we're dead. Worse than dead, Roger said. We get locked up, basically forever. I stopped breathing. My heart was pounding in my ears. I peeked through the slightly open door, not daring to make a sound. It looked like Max was crying. I know what you're gonna say, Max said. I know what he did was wrong, but he got what he deserved, Roger interrupted. You know what he did. You saw the bruises he left on Meg. The idea that someone hurt my daughter made my blood boil, but something told me to keep listening. Dude, Roger said, he was bad, and we both know that he would have gotten worse. I thought you understood that. You even took pictures. I took them for her. I know, Max, I know. I couldn't bear to confront them. That would be admitting what I heard was real. While she indulged her sister's desire for a tea party, I went through Meg's room and found my old digital camera between her mattress and box spring. I scrolled through her photos and saw what they had done in reverse order. The first image was Alan's lifeless body. Roger and his friend were standing over him. The second, Alan standing alone, terrified, knowing what was about to happen. Sam was my boyfriend. I love Sam very much. There was a time when we were going to get married, but that seems like a different life now. Since I had last seen Sam, the flower has appeared next to my bed almost every night. It comforts me. 
The stem pushes out through the pile of the bedroom carpet. It grows thick and long. I watch as it rises up high and sways with a slow, dull vegetable weight. Then the receptacle bulges into prominence at the top of the stem, and an ovary of four petals extends out from the center and tickle the air. I laugh. I cover my mouth, and I laugh like a little girl. I'm 75. No one who ever sees me on the street. None of the other attendants in the apartment block. No one at all knows that I had a life once upon a time. That I had a boyfriend who I loved. Who loved me back. That we were going to get married one day. But the flower knows. The flower sways backwards and forwards. It reeks like death. But I enjoy the stink. I cover my mouth and I laugh. Some nights I twist the old back over the edge of the bed and I hang my head upside down until my white hair touches the floor. From this angle, the flower looks different. I laugh. I keep on laughing. I remember the last time I saw Sam. It comforts me. Upside down, the petals are arms and legs. The ovary is a torso, and the swollen receptacle is a head. Sam's white, swollen head. And the stem, swaying backwards and forwards, is the rope Sam tied around his neck in the July of 1965. The flower never rots. And because the flower never rots, Sam will never rot. He appears to me now exactly as I saw him that last time. My nails drawing blood as I tried with all of my strength to force my fingers between his ruptured skin and the unforgiving tightness of the noose. I close my eyes now and listen to the flower swaying and smell its fresh, dead smell wafting through the air. I laugh. I put my fingers inside of my mouth, and I laugh. Is this your card? The magician said, holding the volunteer's signed Ace of Hearts. Yes, the man yelled in surprise. Of course it is. The magician joked, and in your shock, you might be wondering how the card was removed from your shirt pocket. Would you do me a favor and see what has taken its place? Sure. The man unbuttoned his pocket and pulled out cash. It's a hundred dollar bill. Yes, sir. And now it's yours. Thanks for being such a fantastic assistant. With that, the magician gestured back to the man's seat. The crowd clapped, the man gleefully holding his reward in the air for his friends to see. The magician allowed the applause to die out before continuing. He smiled mischievously. With that being said, I asked for one more volunteer. Hands shot up in the air immediately, including mine. Don't expect to get picked, Byron grumbled. The other guy's probably just a plant. I glared at him briefly, annoyed, before looking back. The magician was no longer smiling, instead staring daggers at my friend. Somehow, from the front of the room, he seemed to have heard what Byron said. Sir, 
He called out to Byron. I believe you would be a perfect assistant. Please come to the stage. The audience began to clap, and after rolling his eyes at me, Byron relented. As my friend reached the stage, the smile slowly returned to the magician's face. Well then, let us speak about your skepticism. This man, as you may have overheard, does not believe in magic. The magician placed his hand on Byron's shoulder, and the crowd began to boo. I joined in. Now, now, it's perfectly reasonable to have doubts about my abilities. Most magicians are simply flamboyant con men using sleight of hand and rigged variables to present something that mystifies believers and challenges non-believers' abilities to see past the ruse. I, however, am no con man. The magician took his large hat and held it towards the audience, spinning it around. As you can see, this is a normal hat. No rigged variables, of course, and certainly no rabbit. Sir, what is your name? Byron. Take this hat from me, Byron. Look at it closely and make sure it's completely normal. No gears, no wires, nothing out of the ordinary. Byron looked over the hat, turning it in his hands. Seems normal to me. Hold out the hat, sir, with the opening pointed towards me. Byron did as instructed. My previous trick was switching the card with a $100 bill from across the stage, the magician said, holding up the signed playing card. And for my next trick, I will exchange this card for something almost as valuable as money. The magician reached into his hat with the other hand holding the card. As he pulled his hand out, Byron collapsed. The magician held up his hand. The card had been replaced by Byron's still beating heart. 